Ooh, hello. <laughs> this evening, breakfast at the Temple of Diamonds with Audrey and Hannibal Smith. It's the 80s! Wait, wait, that can't be right. This is a show about old movies. Hmm. Anyway, it's the 80s and everything looks like a Duran Duran video. We have a movie by an island boy done good who mixes with modern Hollywood royalty, and courtesy of Gene in our adopted word Alveston, we bring some much-needed class to the show. Welcome to They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. Hello, good evening, my name is Tosin, I'll be your host for the next hour and a half. Um, as we go through the yesteryear of Hollywood movies, you're listening to Sunshine Radio at St. Mary's Hospital on the Isle of Wight. I'd like to say once again hello and welcome to Gene in Alveston Ward, our pet ward. With me in the studio, as almost always, is actually more regular than I am, <laughs> more regular than I've been recently, is Sharon. How are you doing, Sharon? Hello. All right. Thank you. Oh, cool. How's it been over the last two weeks when I haven't been around? Oh, it has been fraught and fun <laughs> in equal measure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. I'll I'll take that. I'll take that as I'll take that. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. Oh, it's good to have you back. <laughs> I've enjoyed being in the chair with all the knobs and all the buttons and clicking everything, but I'm quite relieved that I'm not having to push knobs and click things this week. Well, no, no look, I listened to the last two weeks and you guys did a great job. You, it was yeah, it was fraught but fun. It was fun. Yeah, you you guys you guys did a great job because I, I actually listened to the shows. I was actually listening to them going, Oh, that's pretty good. Oh, that's great. Maybe we should do more specials more often. Maybe we should <laughs> we should try and see whether we can tailor it and do like, you know, because we did a special agent Special, special Agent theme. Special, and we did a remake special. Remake special. Yeah. I think we're going to we're gonna revisit the topic of remakes when The Magnificent Seven comes out in yes, September. Yes, it's, it's ripe for it because there's many films that they've been classic and they've been revisited to lesser, lesser or greater extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and are we, okay, obviously this being an old movie show. Yeah, but we've got Tarzan, which you could say is a remake, though it's a... It's a oh, it's a beast of its own. It's been yeah. made so many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, you see the Magnificent Seven. I mean, how would who would touch that? It's like redoing the Great Escape, isn't it? It's like you touch that at your peril. Yeah, well, I I agree. I think I think that sometimes when you do a remake, I think you've got to do something a bit like what Baz Luhrmann did with Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, completely go for it. It's like you you say I'm going to do this, and there's a reason why this is being made. So isn't there a Westworld coming up as well? I've they've been talking about remaking Westworld for years. I think it's a bad idea. <laughs> I really think it's a bad idea. I don't know what you're going to do to a Westworld, but I just, I just without Yul Brenner being that menace to that. Chris oh yeah, you can yeah. you can replace Yul Brenner. Yeah, he, how do you do that? How, how do you do that? I mean that that thing was so effective, mostly mostly because it was him. Yeah, yeah. It was it, there's he was Terminator before Terminator even existed. Yeah, maybe Killian Murphy. He's got those eyes, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, maybe Killian Murphy. Maybe he could pull it off. But uh, but no, no, I'm not going to let them catch me think, wishing for a remake of that film. <laughs> anyway, so as you might have guessed by now, or if you listen to us beforehand, be it online or in the hospital as we are speaking right now, this is a show about old movies. We talk about four movies through here, throughout the course of the show. We talk about a bona fide classic, a film that is widely accepted and lauded and said, this is a great film. Then we go into the hospital and pick a patient choice from a pet ward, Alveston Ward, today picked by Jean. Then after that, we go on to A Hidden Gem, a movie that many people do not know about and hasn't got its day in the sun, but we think, we shall give you your day in the sun now here on Hospital Radio on the Isle of Wight. <laughs> and finally, we will end up with an exception to the rule. 
Uh, kicking off today, we have a film that has been chosen by somebody who, well, well, someone who's not in the hospital, but someone who knows about the show, listens to the show, and we just sort of like ask them, pick a film made before 1980 that you think is absolutely awesome and a bona fide classic. And Ellie picked this film. Now I'm going to play a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a read interview I did with Ellie last night, where I shoved a microphone in her face and asked her, "Tell me about this film. Why did you pick it?" And this is what we, uh, this is what Ellie had to say. I'm here with Ellie, who chose, who chose Breakfast at Tiffany's as your choice for a bona fide classic. Can you tell me what do you love about Breakfast at Tiffany's? The love story. What about the love story gets you? <laughs> I don't know, I just like the style of it and the fashion. I love the fashion in it. And the cat. The cat. The cat's my favourite part. I'll go on quotes saying that. When do you first remember seeing Breakfast at Tiffany's? I haven't seen it for ages, I'm not gonna lie. Oh. Uh, when I first saw it, it was probably about 10 years ago, something like that. Watched it on film four. And what, what stood out to you on your first view when you looked at it and you thought, what made you think, oh my God, yes, love it? Um, the style of it, probably. And the acting. And the music. The music's good. Moon All River. Right. Moon River's good. Oh yeah, Moon River <laughs> is, is excellent. Okay, but one thing. Okay, you can't talk about Brexit with Tiffany's so unfortunately without talking about Mickey Rooney and his portrayal of Mr. Yoshinoa or whatever it was. Oh, the Japanese guy yeah, yeah the, the really racist uh, part of it. <laughs> yeah it's not great <laughs> and yeah um what do you say really it's just um hilariously bad <laughs> <laughs> all right cool thank you so much elliot thank you for being part of they don't make them like they used to okay thank you for having me <laughs> yes that was ellie talking about breakfast at tiffany's which was her choice which we've decided to go as a lead movie tonight as a as a bona fide classic. We will talk about some of the things that Ellie mentioned in there, especially Mickey Rooney. But first up, let's go with the good things about the film and go with the move with the song that won the best song Oscar for that year. Moon River, sung by Audrey Hepburn, along with some music from the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yes, just like in a loft apartment in Manhattan at some swingers party in the 60s, <laughs> that was Moon Rivers followed by some of the score from the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's. Would you say that was a cha-cha-cha or like a bossa nova? I feel like I should be waving maracas. I think I think it's more my imaginary maracas. I think it's more of a bossa nova. A bossa nova. I think it's more of a bossa nova. I think most of the... Oh, I can't remember who did the music. Was that... Was that... Oh, the guy who did most of the... Oh, okay. I'll remember it later. I'll look it up later. But um, yeah, good music anyway. Oh, Henry Machini. That was it. Hey, no, yes. Same guy. Same guy as the Pink Panther theme tune. 
So it's but breakfast at Tiffany's. Breakfast at Tiffany's. So we spoke to we spoke to um Ellie there, and Ellie spoke about the style of the film. She yeah. spoke about the cat and everything like that. And obviously, when you talk about breakfast at Tiffany's nowadays, when you look back at it, there is the massive, massive elephant in the room that we have to talk about, which is Mickey Rooney. Mickey so Rooney. even before we talk about the storyline of the film, when we talk about what happens in the film, Sharon, would you like to go ahead? Oh, give it both barrels. Give Breast of Tiffany's both barrels and what you have to say about the film. I can completely understand where Ellie comes from when she said it's stylish, you've got the love story, you've got the cats. But to me, Mickey Rooney makes the film unwatchable. <laughs> to me, it, be, it becomes... I'm I'm astonished that they still show it. To me, I think it should be like one, one of those films that deserves its place in history as something that it was made... Certain images you remember, but as a film, it should not be shown on the television anymore because I think that's just grotesque what Mickey Rooney does <laughs> to that character. So for anybody who hasn't seen um for anybody who hasn't seen Breakfast at Tiffany's, there's a yellow face controversy in which Mickey Rooney, the much loved actor Mickey Rooney, plays a character called Mr. Yoshinoa, who is because Audrey Hepburn plays a character called Holly Go Lightly. Yeah. And Mr. Yoshinoa is her upstairs Japanese neighbour. Yeah. And so it was it it's pretty much his portrayal of his portrayal of it's, it's kind of like it's like a cartoon character it, it's kind of like somebody a bad cartoon character from the 40s where everyone who's Japanese is like demonised yeah like the eyes are exaggerated yeah the, the, the teeth stick out the he teeth. has like the buck teeth and everything yeah the hair every quirk and idiosyncrasy that they would say it was Japanese yeah they sort of ramp it up to 11 yeah you know they, they to me it's just unbelievably horrible well it's, it's kind of the same way like if they'd portrayed a German at that time or anything yeah, like that yeah it would have been if it had been a German he would have been had a small moustache he would have been clicking his heels and yeah. would have been Heil Hitler in around the place and had, and had a, about. And like no, no step of no sense of humour and everything yeah. like that because this was 1961 yeah so you I, would think it's long enough away from the war to, to, to have lost some of those really grotesque sort of racial stereotypes. Well, I, and I'm guessing also at that time, I mean, I, 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 I agree that it is, you'd hope that they would have known better. Yeah. You'd hope that they would have known better. But I think that it's the kind of thing where they probably, it was probably like Japan was still kind of far away for a lot of people. Yeah. They didn't really see it as a, they didn't really, they didn't consider that these were people, <laughs> if, if, if you kind of yeah. get what I mean. Yeah. Because I'm saying that as, a, as somebody who has, uh, and I've said it, about, said it on the show before, I have like, you know, real issues with the portrayal of, well, of African countries mm. and like, you know, Nigeria, especially on, on film, because I'm just like, oh, for goodness sake, what the, <laughs> have, have, did you even go there? Did you even know yeah. any, I have, I have. But it's like, I, it's a vast continent. It's not all jungle. And it's not all Zulus running around throwing spears. Exactly. It's, you know, it's there's... not. It's not all. It doesn't all look like a safari park. So yeah. it's. So I say that I say that though there, but it's you. You do see that that character. And it, it does reek of people never having met a Japanese person. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you can see that they've added it almost for comic relief. It was supposed to be. It's obviously supposed to be the comic relief. Yeah. It's supposed to be the comic relief. It's supposed to be someone who's like, oh, 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 look at that silly Japanese man and all that kind of stuff, which is... But to yeah. me, it stops the film dead. Every time he appears, it stops the film dead. I have. To, I agree with you on that. Each time he appears, it does It does sort of detract from the storyline yeah. that's going on. So we, we'll, I've we'll, only ever seen the film once because of that reason. I've seen it once and I thought... 
I cannot watch that film again. Well, you see now, this is... A, okay, so you might it might annoy you to know that in 2012, the film was deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the United States Library of Congress and selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Crikey. Well, and, uh, <laughs> but the, this is this is the thing. I think you come from that point of view where it shouldn't be shown. It shouldn't be shown. Yeah. I kind of like... I kind of... When I, when I watched it, I just kind of thought, Wow. I was like, wow, I think people should people need to see this because they need to realize, okay, this is how bad it got. Yeah. It's it's kind of like the same thing like when I look at uh Alexi like Laurence Olivier or um Anthony did Hopkins, yeah, did Othello yeah, play black enough to play Othello. Yeah. And it's it's kinda of like it just I, you I see Orson Welles' Othello, you think Yeah, that ain't realistic, is it? Yeah, but it's, it's, I don't think this should be banned. I think nah, keep it out there. People need to see this stuff. Yeah. Need to, realize, to believe that it actually happened. To believe it actually happened. Yeah. Because if you if it wasn't if it wasn't there, people wouldn't believe That's it. That's true enough. I accept that argument. People wouldn't believe it. But I, I do agree that the it's it, that is a massive black mark against the film. Yeah. That's a blessed, bless, but let's okay. So that's the elephant out of the that's way. The, yeah, we'll get rid elephant of Murky Rooney. Out of the way. So now this is a film that is iconic. So the yes. image, I think, the iconic image of Audrey Hepburn that adorns many a student wall. Yes, I think that's what's kept this film alive. Is that image of her in the black dress with the pearls around her neck, the cigarette in the cigarette in, holder. Yep. With her Holding hair piled up on her head. Yeah, and a kind of like 60s beehive and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's just, that is a look of the 60s, isn't it? That was one of those iconic images of the 60s. Yeah. And I think if it if that had been any other actress, I was trying to think who who would have been enormous at that time. I'm trying to think, oh, her name's gone out of my head. Tuesday Wild or someone. Oh, yeah? Who was popular but not a massive. Mm-hmm. You think that film would have disappeared, probably. Yeah. It was because of Audrey Hepburn. That it, it kind that, of that it kind endured of holds because it was her at her best, her most beautiful, her most sort of alfin. Yeah, and the character she plays, completely unlike the character she played. Yeah, now Holly Golightly. It's well, okay. Well, is, okay, okay. Let's let's start off with hmm. this is a film. This is a story written by Truman Capote. Yeah, so it's quite a hard. Yeah, Truman Capote, who who film. who gritty is known film. for writing gritty things. He's mm. known for writing in cold blood. That's like his yeah. classic. And he doesn't flinch from the harsh harshness and the cruelties and the he, he does, the crudities of life. He see. does he does not flinch from those. He doesn't flinch from those. And the character of Holly Golightly, when he wrote it, it was based on himself. So in the in, right. So in the book, he, she talks about these sort of like. Uh, I think it's red rages or hot something so it can yeah. refer to them where essentially just it's essentially almost like depression that begins to come upon onto, onto her to glow lightly mm-hmm. where she and that's why she has to go to Tiffany's to make herself feel better yes because that's the whole idea of breakfast at Tiffany's it's like it's, she, it's where she goes it's her happy place yeah it's a place to make her feel it's to make her again. feel to make mm-hmm. her feel good again and the, so she's based quite a bit on him and he hated the film. He hated the film because obviously he signed, he gives the rights to the film studio to make the film. And then he, I think pretty much every decision they made, he did not like. <laughs> yeah. it, because first of all, he was like, Audrey Hepburn is not Holly Golightly. Yeah. She is not supposed to be Holly Golightly. He wanted Marilyn Monroe. Because yeah, someone who lived. Yeah, because he... he and you he, could see it in a, by the early 60s, you could see that Marilyn had been through a lot, couldn't yeah. you? Yeah. And I think that was his point. He was like, Marilyn Monroe is a Holly Girl Lightly because you can yeah. see the pain behind her eyes. You yeah. can see that she's gone through stuff. And he's thinking, But she still puts on that happy face, doesn't yeah, she? She puts, she puts on, the, on the mask. She puts on the mask, but behind the mask, you, you can see the sadness. Yeah. And he was like, Audrey Hepburn doesn't have that. No. He, she, like, she, she doesn't have that. It's going to be sanitized. And I think when they hired Blake Edwards to direct the movie, I think he probably blew a gasket. <laughs> he probably, <laughs> sort of hit his head and went, oh, my He probably stars. blew a gasket and went, oh, my God. <laughs> They're ruining it. They're ruining it, because let's be. I think he thought Audrey Hepburn was a bit too was a bit too butter would have melt, melt in her mouth, 
And also, uh, to be honest, when you think Blake Edwards, he's not the man you hire to direct a dark movie. No. Uh, but, uh, because Blake Edwards, he's known for frothy. He's yeah, if you want lightness of touch and if you yeah. want that sort of joy, yeah, but this is not about the joy. This is about that those dark undercurrents, it's, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and I think the touch, the combination of, uh, of Audrey Hepburn and Blake Edwards with his light touch as a director is probably the reason why it takes you a while to re- <laughs> it takes you a while to realize that this is basically a movie that's a love sto- love story between two prostitutes. Yes, and uh, I think there's loads of people I know who've watched Breakfast at Tiffany's and not got it and haven't realized mm. it hasn't gone through to that it hasn't gone through that by the end of the movie that Holly Golightly is pretty much a prostitute because yes. they don't realize okay yeah, she. So she has all these men who come around to her house. She goes out and she dressed nicely. They pay for her flat. They pay for her cab. They pay for everything. But it doesn't. It doesn't click. connect then that doesn't... she is kept. Yeah, that she. That and she when you're kept, kept by then many they... men. Yes, and when you're <laughs> kept, then you have to pay to, in order to pay for that. You pay for that. Yeah. In a different way. Yeah. It's, it, and, and <laughs> but you still pay for it. <laughs> there's even things that she says that she pretty much says, I go with men and they buy me nice things. Or so she says lines like that. Yeah. And people forget about it. People just, it just. They beca- think it's just like, oh, they're just being nice to you. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's a combination of Audrey Hepburn, the world's sweetheart at the moment, at that yeah. time. And, um, and, of and the touch of Blake Edwards, who is frothy, yeah. who is and George like, Peppard, who was yeah, he was well, a lesser matinee matin- idol, but he was still known as more of a matinee idol at that time, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, that George Peppard, who went on to become Hannibal Smith Hannibal of the Smith. 80s. Yeah. If you have a problem, and if you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe you can call George yeah. Peppard a male <laughs> prostitute. But <laughs> yeah, but they, the the reason they're drawn together, isn't it? Originally, is because they're both these damaged people, and they yeah. recognise something in each other yeah. but they're both broken people but in the film he's just like he's a nice boy and meets this nice girl and they both like the cat Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and there's this older woman who comes to his house and like you know every now and then comes out of the bathroom putting her clothes on while he's under the, but it doesn't really it doesn't register no. that all this is happening because it's not it shies away from the hard edge that you imagine is I've never read the original book no, but, I can't say I have either. I've read some Truman Capote, but not that yeah. one. But it doesn't. It shows away from the hard edge that you would expect from Truman Capote. It just kind of like yes. let's just ignore that and put. Maybe that the world wasn't ready for that sort of grittiness in 1961, and maybe that's not what they were looking for in their cinema going public. Because if they had made it that gritty, would anyone see it? Like, but then they did make Midnight Cowboy. You know, any sort of that seven or mid, eight years yeah, later, yeah, yeah mid 60s. That, that's seen as a turning point in in Hollywood. Where they did look at male prostitution and they did yeah. look at the cost of okay. now you see now the lower steamy side of life. Now Breakfast at Tiffany's. Now this is not a remake, but essentially another adaptation from the original source material. That's one that I think would be worthy of, yeah. of getting a remake. Going nowadays. back and revisiting the original. Yeah, yeah and and making the a film that's close to what Truman Capote actually wanted. So, yeah. but it's so, and I think the film. I mean, there's there's a the big massive de- um, party scene in the middle of the film. Yes. Ellie mentioned the cat because there's this cat. That... Yeah, the cat in the alleyway. Is it? I remember the cat of the alleyway in the end. Where yeah. is? I don't know if the cat is supposed to be symbolic of Holly ca- Lightly, The fact that it's a bit of a stray. It goes where it. You know, yeah, she it, she pretty much says that in the script. Yeah. She says she says. Oh, there because this is the this is the way the cat is because when George Pepper when he gets to the point where he's kind of like look I love you and I think we should get together and she's like no n- nobody owns me and I don't own anyone I'm like me and this cat yeah and the cat that nobody owns this cat I don't own the cat the cat doesn't own me we're just sort of like strays we just kind of go all the way and so if even so it has these bits but it's 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 
it, it feels like a highly sanitized movie. Although I will say one thing that I, I like you were alluding to. I feel like if the movie that Truman Capote had wanted had been made, it would not be as stylish and it would not be as remembered and revered as it is today. No, no, no way, no. Because I think when you look at, like, Pretty Woman did the same thing, they didn't it with prostitution. They tend to make it like, oh, yeah, you can be a prostitute for 10 years and still look like Julia Roberts. <laughs> and it's like, have you ever Because <laughs> I was thinking, going back to my policing days, like, when you meet, see photographs, I know they're police photographs, they're not flattering anyway. Yeah. But when you used to see police photographs of people who had been prostitutes for 10 years, they they show it on they show every line and every uh, yeah it's I, shown on their faces they don't look like say? Julia Roberts I, I had I had a lecturer who used to say that's Hollywood yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and totally that was Sir also Kotbrick he's actually a lecturer in Portsmouth and I'll say yeah that's that's Hollywood, that's Hollywood. <laughs> you, you uh, I think a, a similar thing happened with Mary Poppins like I was thinking exactly the same thing how the writer hated what Disney were doing to yeah. her her character yeah. Like if you've ever seen the movie Saving Mr. Banks, yes, which is a very wonderful good film, film, wonderful, very film. good film. I think it's it's worth it just to see the fight between the writer whose name I cannot remember and um, P. Travers or was it P. L. Travers? P. J. Travers. P. Something Travers, yeah. yeah P. Yeah, something, yeah. yeah. P. Something Travers and um and uh and Walt Disney yeah. about the portrayal of Mary Poppins. It's kind of but it's like it's riddled. People always say like you know they talk about oh the film they made a book of a they made a film of a book and they messed it up. But it's like an age old thing that they just change it. They they tend to change things, which kind of well. Thank you very much, Ellie, for for being part of that on Facebook and live. But just thank you for that. We hope you enjoy that. And uh, yeah, Breakfast it's worth, it's always worth revisiting these films, as controversial as they are. It's worth revisiting them. Yeah, maybe just cut. Mickey Rooney out. Yeah, just if they could do an edit without him in it, maybe. <laughs> I might well, bring myself the to truth watch is it. that he's not... because He's, he's not, not in it a lot, no. Well, he's not in it a lot and he's not central to the storyline whatsoever. No. So he is totally there for comic relief. Uh, it's just just a bit unfortunate. But thankfully, we've kind of gone past that now. Yeah, <laughs> but, that's done. Right, so <laughs> thank you, Ellie. And now we go into the hospital. Every Friday, we go into the hospital to our pet ward, Alveston, and we find somebody who is willing to answer the question, tell us the story of the first film you ever saw at the cinema. Today, I met Jean, and Jean was kind enough to speak to us. This is what Jean had to say. The first time I can remember going to the cinema anyway is to see a film called The Great Caruso, <laughs> which would have been probably back in the 1950s, I suppose. Hmm. Oh, do you remember what it was about or who you went mm, with? Or? It was about an opera singer. Uh, somebody who became an opera singer in time. I think he was a, you know, a poor boy who sort of has got a super voice and who's found out to be uh, a good opera singer. And it's a story of his life, but uh, how in the end, unfortunately, he died quite young as a result. So, well, I've hmm. never heard Very of sad. this. Sad. It's called The Great Caruso. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Do you remember much about it? Like, um... like I say, I was only a very little girl when I went, but I enjoyed the singing. So the music. So That's what, all I can remember. <laughs> what impact did it have on you when you saw The Great Caruso? Like, oh. I, I, I liked the singing, even though I was only very young, but at the same time I was so sad that he had to die young and I didn't know why. And I still don't know quite why he did, but uh, whether it was because of his singing or something that they were doing to him, to, uh, I have really no idea. But, mm. Oh, but 
Yeah, that was that was a quiet thing to see as a young child. Mm, this was. Well, I went with my mom and my grandmother, and they wanted to see it, so I got dragged along as well. Yeah, I, I remember a film like a film that had a similar similar impact on me. It was a film called The Champ, and it was all about this boxing guy, and the whole thing was about the the relationship between this guy and his mm-hmm. son, and um and at the end he wins this fight, like the biggest fight of his life. When winning it, he gets he dies. <laughs> it always happens that way, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think if you're watching the film, you're like, what the. Yes, thank you very much, Gene. And we have managed to, you were talking about, you're speaking about the music there, the music of Caruso and the music that was in the film. And we've managed to arrange a little, a little bit of a musical suite for you. So this is the music that was played in the original trailer for, so it's essentially just music with words on the screen, like the great Caruso, now on screen, see the amazing story and all that kind of stuff. And followed by that, it's going to be Mario Lanza playing the great Caruso, singing Ave Maria from the movie. So please enjoy.
Yes, so that was Mario Lanza playing a person who was apparently his idol in real in real life, playing the great Caruso. So, Sharon, you have seen this film. Yes, I have. Yeah, because I'd never heard of it before. No, I'm well familiar with the great Caruso and Mario Lanza. Okay, I yeah. have a little story as to how. Well, I went through various musical phases when I was younger. Yeah, I felt I was a bit resentful of only being able to listen to like the pop music of your generation so growing up in the 70s and 80s I thought I don't want to just listen to what I what's around now I went back in time so I like, unlike most of my peers I used to listen to 50s rock and roll and I did discover Mario Lanza when I was in my teens and I just have a little story to tell about that and then I'll get on to the great cruise soon okay cool but I've got 11 uncles and aunts and 30 first cousins and in my, growing up in my house Whoa. every now and then <laughs> That's so, so I, I just did the maths. I was just kind of like, whoa. Yeah, some of my uncles and aunts had lots of children. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so well, sometimes what we'd find growing up in the 80s and 70s and 80s was people never rang first. Well, we didn't have a phone till the 80s. But no, people never rang at our house. They just turned up every now and then. Oh, man, <laughs> I miss so that. I remember having like a knock on the door and open the door. It was my Uncle Harry. And I was the only one at home. And obviously, all my uncles and aunts were many years older than me. My dad was in his 50s when I was born. Mm -hmm. So all his brothers and sisters were in their 60s and 70s when I was growing up. So I remember one day, my Uncle Harry turned up at the door. And I was there to entertain him for like three hours before I knew my mum or dad were coming in. Yeah. And often with older relatives, you've got to find a topic of conversation to get the conversation going otherwise it can limp along yeah. and it'd be really painful after you've had a cup of tea and how are you and how's the family it's painful and we talked about all sorts of things but we landed on music and my uncle harry's favorite singer of all time was mario lanza yeah and i was going through my mario lanza phase so i was able to immediately reach my hand onto a mario lanza record and we played some mario lanza songs together and then from then on it was just the two hours just like flew by so yeah i've got real fond memories of listening to Mario Lanza when I was a teenager and it reminds me of my Uncle Harry so that's my little story Mario Lanza bringing Mario families Lanza. together yeah he did that time but yeah he played the great Caruso and the great Caruso as as um, you said in your introduction was a very very famous opera singer mm-hmm. and he was famously died young he had reached the peak of his performance he had like this perfect tenor voice and then he sort of tragically died and we've just looked it up on the internet that he died of peritonitis but the film is largely a fictionalised account of how it's like a rags to riches story. Yeah. How he was born in like a poor peasant boy. Someone heard him singing one day and was like, oh, you have an amazing voice. And one of the scenes in the film that I remember particularly is where he hits the, it's, I, I have to make sure it's the right note, but he hits like the high C. Mm-hmm. And he does this like party piece where he makes all the glass in the chandelier sort of tinkle. Yeah. And there's another scene where he hits this high note and a glass sort of shatters. And Mario Lanza could do this as well. And in a number of Mario Lanza films, he did lots of films in the 50s and yeah. early 60s. All of them are very exactly the same story. Poor peasant boy, fisherman, <laughs> trader, barrow boy, lorry driver, whatever you like. And it normally ended up with Catherine Grayson and they used to sing duets together. But whatever. <laughs> but they always started off like a poor boy discovered becomes a massive opera singer yeah so he's like his life mirrored that of the great caruso yeah. and he was known as like the caruso of his generation but I, in the I, great caruso yeah, yeah. i think it was actually called the american caruso Mary yes Lanza's called Mary Lanza. yeah but i just i just love the fact that in that in that age cinema was just like unabashedly 
escapist. Yeah. <laughs> it was we're gonna give you the same film fifteen times. Yeah. And, and we're like and we're just like, we don't care. We just don't we want to we want something that we know could never happen. <laughs> and yeah, but it's just yeah, it's so Mary Lancer, he made the same film over and over again. And it is the same stories in the Great Cruise. <laughs> and then, so he reached the height of his fame and then sort of th- things happen either with some of the Mario Land and things, it's like drink or women or something happens and his career's in danger and yeah. it's like a, a fall from grace almost and then the love of a good woman or sort of getting back on his feet again. And generally, a lot of Mario Land's film, it was Catherine Grayson. They were like this screen partnership. Yeah. And yeah, in the film, it has how the great Caruso meets his wife and his family and he always has like this sort of peasant friend who yeah. sort of visits them all the time there's like comic relief who but they sort of throughout the film it has these amazing sort of operatic or or some of them are soft opera so they're more acceptable to the the non-operatic yeah ear. yeah and there's great music throughout so yeah Gina's right the thing that stands out the most is is the singing and yeah, for me it was this sort of the glass shattering high notes that he could get hmm. but it's fa- I think it's basically a fictionalised account of what they, well, what they yeah, hoped the cruise's life was I, I believe it I believe it's, it's called a highly fictionalised account apparently it was a massive hit at the time because yeah, the it made the biggest it made film a, of the year it made like nine times what they spent on it to make yeah. so it's so and that's I mean in any age if you spend money and you make nine times back what you made when you spent on it, that's just a massive, massive hit. But it's, uh, it's, it's. I mean, I think we should almost have a section of the show called "That's Hollywood." That's Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> that tells you what Hollywood did to like real life stories. So apparently, the the film was so highly fictionalized that Caruso's family sued <laughs> MGM, who made the and they so won because that didn't of this. Happen. Yeah, because it was so far from his actual life. Well, yeah, because for instance, apparently the whole rags to riches thing and all that kind of stuff. It says here that uh, it shows there's a montage showing him riding from like an operatic chorister to supporting singer, and he includes him singing the minor role of Spalletta in the Puccini's opera Tosca. Although Caruso never sang in, a, in an opera chorus, nor did he ever sing a supporting role. By the time Tosca premiered, Caruso was already a rising opera star and was considered by Puccini himself for the starring tenor role of Caravodosi. Oh my word, I can't believe I go all the way well through done. that. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's so it's like things like that that they made throughout the whole film. Even the way, I mean, uh, Gene mentions the fact that he dies. And Gene, we've tracked out exactly what it is that he died of in the film. So in the film, Caruso appears to die on stage after a throat hemorrhage during a Metropolitan Officer performance of Martha. Now, apparently, Caruso did suffer from a throat ailment, but that is not what killed him. As we said, it was yeah. peritonitis, and that was years after he actually had the throat hemorrhage. Yeah, because in the film, there's a, quite a bit about him sort of grabbing his throat and then seeing doctors about, you know, oh, I've got this, oh, my voice, my yeah, voice. Yeah, yeah, And them sort of doing different cures and them saying, you must go to the doctor, you must have an operation on your throat. And him like, no, 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 my voice, I have to sing and all this sort of stuff. So I do remember that with his pal sort of going, oh, you know. The, the not, and then trying and failing to get that glass shattering note yeah in the film before his sort of you know fatal collapse yeah so yeah so it sounds like well hollywood did sort of like pick and choose and go you know what it'll be a lot more it'll be a lot more impactful if we ended it there yeah. what if that actually and i feel like a lot of times when hollywood does a story that's what they have to they have to start going to based on a true story yeah. as opposed to a true story because it's like it's it's Hollywood speechman saying that okay in life there's some stuff that happens that like quite frankly is boring yeah. <laughs> and so so they go and that's not Hollywood that's not Hollywood 
would it be wouldn't it be great if it was like this yeah. <laughs> and they totally change it and they go yay check that out that really works like i remember th- there's a film called the fighter made uh probably about five six years ago with mickey now. rourke no no that's the wrestler oh the wrestler i'm sorry we're, we're, we're thinking of, um the fighter is mark Wahlberg. I know it, yes. Yeah, it's about this boxer and it's based on a true life story about this uh, guy. Is that the one with Christian Bale won the supporting yeah. actor? Yeah, Christi- Christian Bale plays his brother. Yes. He plays his, his sort of like drug addict brother in, yes. in the film. And I've in the film, and I remember watching a documentary on the DVD about this film and they were essentially, so the screenwriters, they were writing this, the screen, screenplay while this guy was still fighting and everything. So they were, so he had three fights. Three fights defined his career with this guy. And like a Rocky movie, he lost the first fight against this guy. Then the second fight, he won He won the fight against... He won the fight, won, wins the belt. And then there was a third fight. And the screenwriters, the screenwriters, they were at the fight, the third fight. And they were like, you know, if he wins the fight, this is where we're ending the film. If he loses this fight, we're ending the film after the second fight. <laughs> <laughs> and he lost the third fight so they were like we're ending the film after the second okay, fight, fight. Yeah. we're going to end on a high and so they ended a high and they just got yeah great or all that. and it's just it's about that whole thing that Hollywood wants to give you that story it wants to give you that escapist yeah. thing and we'll pull on a whole bunch of different things and say based on a true story but thankfully nowadays we have things like Wikipedia and pretty much whenever it's, it's almost like like a ritual now with my wife and I. Whenever we see a film, I would so like based on a true story, jump on Wikipedia, find out, okay, yeah. exactly how much of this stuff actually did happen and how much of this stuff actually w- was like, you know, put it in there to make it flow better, to make it uh, work better. Uh, and then we had that with Joy, the movie that was made by the same guy who made the fights, actually, David O. Russell. Yeah. And we were like, some of this stuff seems fantastical. <laughs> well, Wikipedia, oh, find out what happened. <laughs> so it's it's quite good. It's funny you say that. I do exactly the same thing. <laughs> and I, I've done it for a long time because I remember looking at like war films, like Zulu, for example. I was thinking, yeah. did it really happen that way? And then looking up the real story and thinking, hey, they've really changed quite a bit. And so I've always done the same thing. If I see, and it says based on two events, I go and look it up. Yeah, it, or even like Braveheart. Yeah. I'm finding out that William Wallace and Robert the Bruce actually were alive at two different time periods. Yeah, <laughs> and that you couldn't have died when he died because you would have been tortured for three years or something. It's uh, Yeah, they just don't add up. Some of the dates don't add up and events don't add up. That's Hollywood. But, that's Hollywood. <laughs> but I do the same thing. So, yay, snap. Yeah, cool. Good stuff, good stuff. Thank you so much for that, Gene. The great Caruso, uh, teaching us that Hollywood hasn't changed since the dawn of Hollywood itself. Right, now we go on to a section of the show called The Hidden Gem. However, I have to apologize and I have to play this. If you're wondering, that is the quality control klaxon (laughs) that's going off because... Sharon has managed to sneak this past me. This is a this is a show about movies made before 1980, and somehow we have a film here that looks a bit like a fantastical Duran Duran video. Yes, it's from 1985. Yeah, I, I, guilty. Yeah. I I think what it was, I must have had a minor sort of mental confusion moment that that time because I wrote down a whole list of films we should talk about, and I added this one to it, and then I sort of thought afterwards, thought, oh. It's an 80s film. And I think I've put another one on the list as well that we haven't got to yet. So you may have to edit that list. No, no, okay. That list, it's okay. We do have a show. We have a section on this show called Exceptions to the Rule. And they, from from now, I will allow it. I will allow this one time. But from now, but from now on, (laughs) those, they're getting, they're getting shunted to the exception to the rule. So would you like to tell us what film you've picked that has sneaked past a quality control on this show? Yes, this is a film in the classic mold of the the the, the, the um 
fantasy of the 1980s, and it's called Lady Hawk. Right, and from Lady Hawk, here is the main theme. You know, if I hadn't looked it up and figured out that that was like, you know, an 80s movie, that would is that's a dead giveaway. <laughs> that, that, that music is a dead giveaway that this is 80s. It's sort of like starts of all sounding like all kind of like epic and stuff. Then all of a sudden the synthesizer comes in and you're like, yeah, come on. Let's get our leg warmers on. Let's get yeah. our leg warmers and shoulder pads going. <laughs> that takes me back to my teens. All right, cool. So Lady Hawk, Lady what is Hawk. it? What is it about? And why is it in your why is it in your opinion? Opinion, a hidden gem it's a hidden gem well lady hawk is a fan it's a medieval fantasy and to, just to put it in a bit of a context in the mid early to mid 80s there was a whole raft of films in this sort of like sub genre things like hawk the slayer krull Conan the barbarian Conan the barbarian uh, Beastmaster. There was a big genre of like these sort of cod historical epics that had an, a strong fantasy element, mm-hmm. where they were like trying to place them in like a historical context. Yeah. So this is set in like medieval France, but with the fantasy element in it. So basically, it's the story of a young thief, Philippe Gaston, who's known as Mouse, and he's played by a very young Matthew Broderick. One of his early roles. He's like he is a teenager. This is this is pre-Ferris Ver- Bueller. Yeah, pre-throw spoiler, definitely. He's very thin and he's very little. But yeah, he's Philip Gaston the mouse. And he escapes from a supposedly impregnable fortress. It's supposed no one gets in, no one gets out. And once he gets sent to the dungeons, and he's a little thief, so he's sent to the dungeons and he escapes. Yeah. He uses his thinness to sort of wiggle down through gutters and drains, and but he manages to get out of the fortress. And then he unwisely starts boasting, hey, I managed to get, I got out of this. He's a bit of a braggart as well. He's like, yeah. very boastful. And he's, the wrong person overhears him and someone sort of like um, attacks him and then this this dark knight comes to his rescue. A man all in black. Yeah who sort of disappears and the next day this lady comes to him and says you know we have a job for you we have to go back no sorry I'm getting the story wrong the dark knight saves him and then he says I have a job for you I want you to get us back into the fortress I have to go back into the fortress he's like I've just got out of there I'm not going back and he sort of promises him great rewards for doing it Yeah. and the reason why this dark knight um, wants to get back in the fortress is this dark knight is under a curse he was the captain of the guard in the, the city and he fell in love with this beautiful young woman called Isabel who's Ooh. played by Michelle Pfeiffer you're beginning to intrigue me and the dark knight is Captain Navarre who's played by a young gorgeously handsome Rutger Hauer <laughs> and these are like star-crossed lovers yeah and there's this evil archbishop 
who has sort of has had these <laughs> evil desires upon Isabel. And when he finds out that she's fallen in love with the with Navarre, he casts them out and he puts this curse on them, this dark curse on them, that she will be a hawk by day yeah. and he will be a wolf by night. So they'll be forever together, but forever apart. Yeah. And there's this split second at daybreak and at sunset where they have like a tiny glimpse of their human selves where he's in transition into a wolf or she's out of transition from a hawk. And they have that moment together, but they're like they've been tormented. So they can, they're always together. So she looks after the wolf by night and he looks after the hawk by day. And he okay, okay, Sharon. I'm not sure whether it's your storytelling capabilities or anything, but you're sound, making this sound a lot more interesting than the trailer looked. Hey, this is '80s classic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm beginning to go. Actually, this is some good story. This is some yeah, good story so, devices putting up there. Oh, conflict, lust, darkness, lovers. Oh, and these evil, be, be, be the, like desire never f- totally fulfilled at sunset. I'm liking this. Yeah, and so they get Gaston. They want to break into. They want to break the curse. Yeah, or what they may think, they, or or end their torment. They don't know which is which. Whether, but they just want to go back and they're going to confront this evil bishop and they're either going to kill him to end their torment and then kill themselves. But they have, they've been in this state for over two years. So they got to the point where they need to go. Yeah. So on their heading back to the fortress, they stumble across the old priest who was Isabeau's confessor, played by Leo McKern, great character actor, who says that he's found out a way of breaking the curse. Oh, yeah. Because um, they're in the, the there's, there's, there's hang, hang on a second. Does it involve a potion that she has to drink and then appear to be dead? No. <laughs> Alas, no. It involves a. Like, uh, no, it's not going to be a spoiler if I tell you what the break of the curse is. It involves an eclipse. All right. Where day becomes night and night becomes day at the same time. All right. And so, because it's day, she can be in her human form. Because it's night at the same time, he can be in his wolf form, and they can be together. Yeah. So the curse can only be broken when day becomes night and night becomes day. And they think it's never going to happen. But during an eclipse, it does. Yeah. And so they're going to wait to the moment of the eclipse and then confront him together, this evil priest. And so they they quite a plan, the four of them, the priest, Amir McKern, the thief, um, Matthew Moderick, and then the knight, Rigger Hauer, and the hawk, yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer, decide that they're going to go. Who I'm guessing the movie is named after. She is Lady Hawk. Yeah. 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 And that's the nickname that Matthew Broderick's character gives her. Because he he doesn't work he doesn't know originally who's who or what's going on yeah he just knows there's a dark night then at night you never see the dark night but you see the beautiful lady yeah and then in the day the beautiful lady's gone but the night's back yeah and so he then thinks ah he works out what's happened and then he starts calling her Lady Hawk ah oh, okay no, this this sounds quite because Lady Hawk is I've heard of this film before but each time yeah. I hear about it it's spoken about as kind of like. Almost in terms of the movie that Michelle Pfeiffer doesn't want you to know she made. Yeah, I think I think I actually think I was Grease too. Yeah, oh yeah, (laughs) yeah. It can be a camp fest, and the music, as you've heard, and that music in its exuberance does cut in (laughs) at various points in the film. So where there, it sounds like the kind of thing that you would expect in the Goonies. Yeah, you sort of they're having like this battle with these knights in armor, or while in their sort of medieval armor, they're like slashing each other with swords, and suddenly the synthesizer kicks in, and it's like, and it is, and they're like, picture that with sword fights and people riding horses and. Great conflict and romance, death. So you've got that campiness mixed in with this sort of high romance and high fantasy. Yeah. And at the end, when 
the curse is broken. As that, it's not a spoiler because it's been, it's a film it's that's thirty years yeah. old. It's an eighties film. Yeah, this, the uh, curse is broken. This isn't the Great Caruso. No, <laughs> and it is. It's this highly romantic ending, and it's sort of like the teenage girl in me sort of still goes, "Oh, it's so romantic." <laughs> I was moved to tears. So I remember watching this on one of our like video marathon days because yeah. we used to go around my friend's house. You know, we lived an exciting life in the nineteen eighties, but we would have like the advent of the home video was like a godsend for us. Yeah, because we would like go around our friend's house and like we'd sort of camp in there from one o'clock in the morning to like midnight and we would watch one film after another yeah and this was always a favorite lady hawk was one of our video if we had a video day lady hawk was on the list and then later on things like dirty dancing got added onto that list and <laughs> terminator <laughs> and other and we had like various different sort of at the late the, the nighttime ones were the the more horror but yeah this was like a late mid to late afternoon early evening film okay so now Loved this it. this is directed by richard donner yes. who is who is were legendary because he he is the man who brought Superman kind of made Superman viable again in 1978. He directed the lethal, he he created and directed the Lethal Weapon movies. So it's as a he he's just got like uh he's got like a laundry list of just movies that he's done and he's yeah. just known as a very very good um action actor uh, action director. But also you the characters tend to stand out. So you think about people like General Zod or um. Joel Zorn in Superman 2 or Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor yeah. in the first Superman. You think about Marty Riggs and Morita and just think about he does that. So is, and this is, so this, it seems a bit like him trying his hand at like, you know, the 80s fantasy thing. Yeah. And so does does this still carry through? Yes, because you've got some great roles by Leo McCone, who's obviously great as the, the priest. Yeah. And then you've got a wolf hunter who appears as Alfred Molina, who Ooh. a young Alfred Molina, and he's this really sort of hairy, sort of bestial guy who hunts wolves and he's sent to kill the black wolf. Yeah. Never manages to do it. And the the the, the evil priest bishop guy is played by John Woods, who is an extraordinarily good English character actor, yeah, and he plays this with malevolence. You can when he's in his sort of priestly garb, you see him put on this saintly appearance. And then when he spots like Isabeau, it's like this malevolence, this lust. Well, this, it was it's all the, there. It was it was the eighties. I mean, every bad guy had to be British. Yes, absolutely. Had, every bad guy had to be British, and even though they're supposed to be in France, bad guys British, the bad, bad guys, guys American. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think you've got to put it in its context. But I think it's a gem of a film, and I still enjoy it now. And actually, when I had a video night with some friends of mine, only about sort of five years ago, what we used to do is we'd watch we'd watch we did the similar to this show. We'd watch a classic film. Yeah, and then I would say, if we had a double bill. I'd say, and I would introduce like a hidden gem yeah. at the same time, and I showed this to them because they were like going, "I'm not watching that. That's twenty years old." <laughs> and and even halfway through the film, they were getting into the whole campiness of it and the the high romance of it. So you've got to look at it in in its context that it was everything was like turned up to eleven. Yeah, in the 1980s yeah, and this yeah. is a film that is turned up to 11 in all its aspects yeah. but I love it I think it's a great film and I think it's yes yeah, been forgotten but other than people who were like teenage girls in the 80s like me <laughs> well, well I have to admit when you tell me the story and when you talk about the whole idea of like you know the sun sun going down and then them changing that gets me that yeah. that massively some... massively intrigues me and I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I'm thinking oh that's a genius move that is there's some two good scenes actually one where you see him transitioning out of his wolf state and one where you see her transitioning into her hawk state there's both of them are really good yeah. for the, the, the effects of their day yeah but they're quite effective even even now 
Well, no, no, well, well done, well done. Okay, hidden gem, Lady, Lady Hawk. Hawk. Go, go find it. Go find Lady Hawk if you haven't seen it, even though it's snuck in as a hidden gem or as a post-80s, whatever. Well, we, we're, we're allowing it. We're allowing it. We're lifting the ban for, for one day, for one evening to, to do that. Lady Hawk, go find it. Go track it down. Right. And now we get onto the section of the show, which is our exception to the rule. Yay. So this is where Lady Hawk would usually would have gone. Yeah. But uh, today we get to talk about two movies made after 1980s that are still pretty good. Now, this was chosen by a friend of the show, Nicole, who I accosted and said, uh, name some films you like. She was like, oh, I like Cold Mountain. And, um, and I said, okay, fine, that can go in there as an exception to the rule. So we choose a film after eighties. We say it is still if made after the eighties, but still great. So this is a film she chose, Cold Mountain, which was directed by Son of the Island, yay, yay proper corkhead, um, Anthony Minghella. Uh, Anthony Minghella in oh I can't remember what year it was. But first of all, before we talk about um, Cold Mountain and go into that into any detail, we're gonna play some music, and this is from the soundtrack of Cold Mountain, Wayfaring Stranger by Jack White. Yeah, that was Wayfair and Stranger by Jack White from the from Cold Mountain. Right, so now Nicole told me, and when she told me about this, she was like, oh, I love this movie. And so made me want to go watch it before we came here. Unfortunately, life got in the way. <laughs> but once again, Sharon comes to the rescue. Yay. Sharon, yes, you have watched this film. Now, yes, I know this film. Yes, and this was the next film that uh, Anthony Minghella directed after his all-conquering. No, actually, it wasn't the next film. He did Tantalin, Mr. Ripley, didn't he? Yeah, did, did, he did English. Was this before, it was after English Patient. It was English Patient, then Tantalin, Mr. Tantalin, Ripley, Ripley, and, and then, then this. this. Because he first met Jude Law while making the Tantalin, Mr. Ripley. Yeah. And I think he, I remember watching one of the interviews and he said to him, it's time that you stood up the plate and took on a leading role. Yeah. And I think this is one of those roles that he said, you know, you need to be a leading man. And so Jude Law, this is one of his first sort of proper leading man roles. Yeah. So it's got Nicole Kidman and Jude Law as our star-crossed lovers, you could say, and following the theme of the Tonight Show in some ways. But yeah, she's Ida. She's uh, She was raised in like a the, the east coast of America, which is regarded as being like the more cultured side of America. Yeah. She's raised to be a lady. She's quite genteel and she's the daughter of a preacher. And he gets taken, he takes on a parish in the mountains of, I think, is it South Carolina? But it's in like... I think it's North Carolina. North Carolina, one of the Carolinas. Yeah. And it's a there's a rural community where women are more practical. They have less time for refinement, and they but but so she's like this impractical lady yeah. who's been suddenly dropped in the middle of this mountain. And Jude Law's character, Ingham Ingman Inman Inman, sorry Inman, yeah. In, he sort of sees her, and he's just like blown away by this sort of vision of of you know female femininity that he's never seen before she's not a working woman she's a a lady yeah and but he's too shy 
to speak to her. So, but they have this sort of tentative romance where they sort of meet outside of a party or she takes him a glass of water when he's working on the house and he they just have this tentative romance between them where yeah. there's a promise of something going on and then the American Civil War is declared. Yeah, I was, like, well, I was about to say all very gone with the wind. Yes, so yeah. far so gone with the wind. And so he goes off to march with all his chums. He goes off to march with the Confederacy. Yeah. They're sort of southern boys through and through and she stays behind. And then he says, like, Will you, can I write to you? So then they begin this correspondence. So a lot of the stories told where she expresses all her feelings into these letters and we sort of get a glimpse into her heart. Yeah. And so just after he goes away, her father dies. And she's left bereft and on her own. And so she clings to this promise of romance with, with Inman, who's away. And then one day she's really struggling to survive. And this mountain woman, Ruby Chews, turns <laughs> up, played by Rene Zellweger. Yay. And she sort of gets her on her feet. She teaches her how to grow food, how to plant, how to survive. Yeah, from what I've seen, like Renée Zellweger, her, her costume look, it, it smacks a little bit of Calamity Jane. Yes, like she's, a raccoon skin hat and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and she's a, things that there's homespun clothes, and it's she's much more earthy. She's a mountain woman. Yeah, and so she teaches her how to how to survive, and it's in this sort of moment when she's just turning a corner when she writes to Ingman, or she writes to him in her lowest point, saying that you know what, wherever you are. If you're marching, please stop marching. If you're fighting, just stop fighting. If you're just just, just sitting, just stop. Come back to me. Please come back to me. Mm. And he's wounded in this ter terrible battle between the North and the South. And he gets his letter and a woman reads it to him and he's wounded in his hospital bed. And he just hears those words, you know, whatever you're doing, stop what you're doing, just come back to me. And then he starts his mission to go back to her. Yeah. He leaves the army, he deserts, and he just starts his long walk back. So you see that from two points of view. You see Ida learning how to cope. With, with Ruby in the mountains and fighting for survival through the dark days of the Civil War. And then you see Inman walking his way back to his home, the cold mountain, yeah. of the story. And on his journey, he meets all these characters. So he meets this amorous um, preacher man who's been caught, you know, seducing one of his maids. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the townspeople sort of like, almost like tar and feather him there. He sort of meets one of him. <laughs> he meets runaway slaves. He meets a woman who's struggling to cope with her man away at, her, at war and a sick baby. So you have all these little episodes where he encounters these people, their ways join and then they part again. Yeah. So you've got these sort of two stories and then they converge and you get to the point where the story comes together again at the end. But it is a, it's a journey. It's two journeys. One where she stays in the same place and one where he travels yeah. hundreds of miles. One, one a kind of like a, well, a, an internal journey, you would say, and the other one a sort of like very literal journey. Yes, a literal journey. Okay. And all the people, this like an Odysseus's quest, he meets all these the, the All these weird and different... These weird and wonderful things happen to him. As, as, he's on his, as he's getting his way, trying to get back home. Yeah, and every time he thinks he's getting closer, something sort of either sets him back or sends him down a different route, but he's determined he's going to get back to his mountain. All right, cool. Well, I do if you look through, it seems like, well, I think because Antonio Minghella... I feel like he had almost this English patient-sized... After he made that film, yeah. he had this English patient-sized shadow over everything he did after that. That people were kind of like... Oh, well, because he yeah. won the best director, didn't he? Yeah, he, he got the best... Patient. Essentially, English patient cleaned up that year at the Oscars. Yeah. I think 95? 
was yes it, it was, was some, about that it yes. was somewhere around about then and uh, so it cleaned about those oscars and so everybody was kind of like you know who was the next english but he wasn't this english patient so you were mentioning earlier that cold mountain when it came out a lot of people didn't like it no they didn't like it at the time yeah oh, why, why was that i think because they thought it was just too romantic Okay. And Charles Fraser's novel of Cold Mountain had been very popular. Yep. And I think in some ways they were thinking, no, it hasn't quite, maybe he's not the right director to do something about the American Civil War. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, yeah, he, I think, he, I I really enjoyed it, but I don't think it was universally accepted at the time, I think. And not everyone, I know, I did, didn't, is that Renee Zawaka get the Oscar for the best Yeah, she won best supporting actress. But that actress. was content as well. Not everyone approved of the fact that, you know, she was the best actress that year. Yeah. Well, but then again, Oscar has a lot of weird things that happen. Yes, they do, so, for different reasons other than pure performance. Yeah, but but I mean, with that, I mean, the film was nominated for loads and loads. I think it's, it says like over 70 awards. And even at those Oscars, it was nominated for quite a few. Let's say Best Actor, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Original Score, Best Original Song. Another one we played, actually one called The Scarlet Tide. Yeah, amazing song. Alison, right. Is it Alison Krauss? Um... Well, I don't know who sang it, but it was written by T-Bone Burnett and Elvis Costello. Yeah, T-Bone Burnett did the music for the whole film. And yeah. It was amazing. It he, really was stunning. I think uh, T-Bone Burnett, whenever he he doesn't he does a couple of things. Whenever he does the music, they're usually great. Like he did a film with um, Jeff Bridges called. Uh, is the one that Jeff Bridges won his Wild Oscar. Heart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wild. Something like that. It Crazy was, Heart. It was, Crazy Heart, Crazy that's Heart. it. Crazy Heart. He he did a f- the music for that, and that won Best Oscar well, for the song for the song the, yeah. the Weary Kind. Didn't he do the music with the Coen Brothers inside Clue and Davis as well? That sounds like him. I think he was connected I, I to think that so, yeah. project as yeah. well. Yeah, he likes that folk blues bluegrass. Didn't he do Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Was he not connected with that at some stage? That I do not know. But that he I has that know. connection to those sort of blue, yeah. that American, that sort of Americana. So blue grassy, blue grassy yeah. American thing. He does all, he was a music supervisor for a TV show called Nashville. Yes. Which is quite soap opery, but has good music. Yes, I've watched Nashville. Yeah. Actually, wait a second. This was, it was nom- two songs from the film were nominated for best original song. So there was another Sting one. Sting was involved with Yeah, one. Sting, you, you will. My you Ain't will True be, Love. Yeah, it will be My Ain't True Love. Yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, Stig was nominated. Uh, the, was that so? It was quite. It was well ec- received yeah. critically, but I think um, some of the popular critics, you know, like the newspaper critics, were like, oh, "I don't like it." I think it's, it's for what? What is the? I know time my friends at the time said like they were like it's a bit too long or anything like that. Or I think it it seems to be a very sort of particular kind of film in that it's. There, there hasn't been any other film that well, when, when I say what's called nobody can say Cold Mountain is like XYZ no it's it stands on its own the only, my only criticism was at times I thought maybe Nicole Kidman was too old to play her character because she's supposed to be this young uh, you know sort of gently reared sort of delicate young thing mm-hmm. and she's obviously played by a much older woman yeah so that can happen you know women can be sheltered and so yeah, they're in their long, late long 20s and they're like they still may have to have their sort of attitude with someone much younger but at times i was thinking yeah i think you're maybe like five years ten years too old to this role mm. it should have been someone a little bit younger and there's a couple of moments where i thought yeah you look a little bit too experienced or a little bit too confident <laughs> at this moment and i'm thinking yeah you're to me, it was like that. My that was my only personal quibble. I thought maybe Nicole Kidman wasn't quite right. But well, what about Rennie Zellweger as Oscar winning, Oscar winning raccoon head person? Yeah, I quite liked her. She was an extreme character because you know she does. She she did push the the envelope to the sort of its limit. Mm-hmm. I think 
any more than it would have gone into caricature. Yeah. But she, I think she got the balance right between playing someone who was not gently reared, someone who has been like raised up by a, in a rough and ready sort of environment yep. and is like almost largely self-taught. So it's going to be tough and hard and, you know, sort of not genteel in the least. Yeah. So I think she might got that balance right, but it was on that edge between caricature and getting the character right. Yeah, because I always had trouble thinking of her as like a frontiers mountain woman who like a rough... Uh, yeah, we know she's Bridget Jones, kind of, don't we? Yeah. Well, we, is there Rennie Zellweger? Yeah. <laughs> like, she, just seems, she just seems a little bit too... Uh, too... Uh, too city, I, I yeah. guess. So, yeah, so, yeah, so I think I, she I manages trouble. it. Okay, cool. And so, I thought Jude Law played Inman very sympathetically. I really enjoyed his portrayal as well. Mm. Of someone who's like shy but determined. And he just wants to get home. Cool. Well, Nicole, thank you very much for. Uh, you have a fan. You have a fellow fan here in Sharon, yes. Cold Mountain, and I will go watch the film and tell you personally whether I agree or not. But you'll love the music. Oh well, I think the music is great. I mean, that's 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 pretty good. Oh, Jack White, who's also in the movie, and and your friend, Killian Murphy. Yes. He's yeah, in he's in the movie with his eyes and everything. Lovely eyes. <laughs> Could drown in those eyes. <laughs> yes, yes, Killian Murphy. You know, apparently he, I think he he auditioned for the role of Batman in Batman Begins. Oh right. With Christopher Nolan, but Christopher Nolan look, had took a look at his eyes and was like, "Oh, we've got to use his eyes. He's a scarecrow. We've yes. got to use him. He he's got to be the scarecrow." And sure enough, I mean, yeah, the guy has got he's got crazy eyes. I mean, it's just it's just yeah, good. Anyway. Well, enough about you, Killian Murphy, and your crazy eyes. <laughs> but anyway, now it is time. It is that time, Sharon. It is. It is that time for us to say goodbye. Say goodbye to Jean. Say goodbye to the hospital. Say goodbye to Ellie. Say goodbye to who else? Yeah, Nicole. Nicole. And say goodbye to Gemma, who doesn't listen to us. <laughs> but she will. She will. She will. And say, please listen to your doctors. Get well soon. Um, and remember that, as always, they, they don't, don't make, make them, them like, like they used, they used to. to.